Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Alachua branch of the Seminole tribe were skilled cattlemen. Holly Baker talks with Seminole ethnographer Jason Herbert. The first cowboys in North America were Indians, and in a lot of cases, they were Florida Indians, and their sovereignty has always been written on rawhide. We'll discuss the lumber industry in Florida, looking at back issues of the Southern Lumber Journal. It was a monthly professional journal primarily focused on the business affairs of lumbering and everything else relating to lumber production in Florida. And we'll talk about the history of redlining in Jacksonville's African-American community. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Seminole Tribe of Florida have been skilled cattlemen for hundreds of years. Ahia Sakafi, born in 1710 in Georgia, was the first chief of the Alachua Band of the Seminole Tribe. In the mid-18th century, Ahia and his tribe relocated to the Alachua Plains of Florida so they could take advantage of a valuable resource, Spanish Criollo cattle. Ahia was called Cowkeeper because he and his people were successful at rounding up and utilizing Criollo cattle that roamed in Florida, remnants of Spanish colonization. Historian Jason Herbert is a doctoral candidate at the University of Minnesota, focusing on early American history. He's also an ethnographer for the Seminole Tribe of Florida. As Jason Herbert explains, Florida cattle were at the center of the political and social world of Ahia and the Alachua people. So Ahia is uh, this remarkable guy. Uh, he's first and foremost, he's a, he's a Creek Indian. He's uh, he's from Oconee uh, on the Oconee River in, in present day uh, Georgia. And he's this super charismatic man. He's a very formidable personality. Uh, when you read descriptions of him in the 18th century, people continue to remark about how smart he is, how he's the most intelligent man they'd ever seen, how he's got this great air about him. And what we know about Ahia is, is he's an incredibly perceptive man. He was a very fierce man. He held a very big grudge against the Spanish uh, for his entire life. And he was very strongly allied to the English for a time. And he moves his town down into Florida uh, in the mid-18th century, sometime around 1750. And he does this for a very specific reason, which is largely because in Florida in the 1750s are thousands and thousands of head of feral cattle roaming the plains. And Ahia, who is also known by his contemporaries as cowkeeper, sees these animals as a way of distancing himself, not only from, say, European powers, the English and so forth, but also from Lower Creek influences. He sees these animals as a resource that can be used to establish trade networks, to feed his own families, uh, and the distance in Central Florida allows him a certain level of autonomy from, say, Lower Creek influences 
uh, and other European influences, such as the English uh, or the Spanish, who were largely by 1750 prisoners of St. Augustine. They're, they're really not getting out into Central Florida at this point in time. The, the Spanish Empire in Florida is really failing quite quickly by the mid-18th century. And that's, that's the intro of Ahaya. Uh, he's really the first, if we were going to consider uh, the person who establishes these Alachua towns, he's the guy uh, who establishes uh, what eventually becomes uh, the Seminole tribe of Florida in a lot of ways. In the mid-18th century, Ahaya led his people to a place that's now known as Payne's Prairie in north-central Florida. There they created a thriving village called Cuscawilla, where the modern town of Micanopy stands. For Ahaya and his people, Florida cattle were a source of power and autonomy. By 1750, you've got about anywhere from 10 to 20,000 head of Spanish Criollo cattle. There's these small, uh, in Florida we call them cracker cattle. There's the wiry kind of cattle that we have here in Florida. And there are about between 10 and 20,000 of them roaming wild in central Florida. And in a lot of ways, uh, when we consider, if we could, were to consider them as like uh, an invasive species, they really kind of come in and replace bison, who by the early 18th century are really on their way out of Florida. There aren't many left. So you've got these massive herds of these animals that really no one is in charge of. And Ohio kind of comes down and recognizes that we can hunt these animals. They can hunt these animals. They can exploit this as a resource. They can sell the jerky. They can sell the hides, uh, the tallow, and so forth. For the Alachuas, cattle represented sovereignty and strength. Jason Herbert. When they have visitors come down, especially European visitors, they often serve beef instead of, say, venison or only uh, bear. Now, those items are also on the menu, but they serve beef here because they understand, I understand, his European guests eat beef. They're expecting to eat beef. So when they come down, when William Bartram comes down, he's a, he's a Pennsylvania naturalist. When he comes down to uh, Cuscoilla, the, the, essentially the capital of the Alachua Plains in uh, the 1770s, Ohio serves him beef because that's what he's expecting. It's a signal. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a state dinner, if you will, uh, to show respect. And to also show in Alachua, on the Alachua Plains, this is who we are. We have cattle here. And it's not to say that there weren't other cattle in other parts of Indian country in the Southeast. Creek Indians certainly had them, Cherokees, uh, there were some in Choctaw country and so forth. There were certainly cattle. But the centrality of cattle to the Alachua lifestyle is what innately made them different than everybody else. Because Ohio moves his town to Florida because of the cattle. And these other accounts that you read about indigenous people, it's always about cattle invading native towns, eating corn, eating out of gardens and things like that. In this regard, you have an entire group of people who move specifically to take advantage of these animals rather than having to adapt to them. So when Ahaya hosts guests and he's serving them cattle, he's like, he's definitely saying, we're beef people. And in fact, this is echoed uh, amongst modern Seminole tribal members who will tell you that they have always been cow people. And that's an important thing to understand when we talk about the links between, say, 18th century Alachuas and 21st century Seminole tribe, uh, members of the Seminole tribe of Florida. Between 1750 and 1775, conflicts concerning land rights increased in Florida. The Alachuas sparred with the Creeks and the British over lands they traditionally used for cattle grazing and hunting. In November of 1765, the first Piccolotta Conference was held between British officials and a delegation of Lower Creek and Seminole leaders to discuss future land rights and to negotiate the boundaries between Native American and British lands. 
Ahaya was noticeably absent from the meeting. Fort Piccolata is this small little fort uh, on the St. John's River in the British colony, the new British colony of East Florida. This is shortly after uh, the end of the Seven Years' War, and now Great Britain has nominally taken control, and I put that in quotes, mind you, of the Floridas, and they create East Florida and West Florida, these two districts of the peninsula. And the very first thing that happens is to establish meetings with the people who live not only in what we consider Florida, but also in Georgia and so forth. And this is going to be a meeting between James Grant, the governor of East Florida, John Stewart, the superintendent of Southern Indian Affairs, and then also of Creek Indians. And this is an important thing to understand because the ways in which we understand Florida today in the 21st century don't apply to Creek Indians. Creek Indians who lived uh, at the time in present-day Georgia and Alabama and also Florida saw all of Florida by this point in time as their territory. Now very specifically it was Alachua territory, uh, towns that followed Ahia. But what ends up happening is everybody kind of recognizes the importance of these grazing lands. James Grant sees he's a prototypical politician. He wants to grow Florida and grow his name and go on to bigger and better things. Uh, and he sees these grazing lands as part of the imperial process in which he's going to attract planters and ranchers from Georgia and South Carolina to start to grow East Florida. And Lower Creek towns had often, by this point in time, looked at Alachua with a lot of disdain. Ohio was down here in Florida really doing his own thing. The people in Alachua really doing their own thing. And the Alachuas in 1765 are largely powerless to stop any kind of land sessions that the Lower Creek Indians want to make to the British. In fact, Ohio himself doesn't even go to the Fort Piccolotta Congress. He doesn't go to these meetings. He tends to go and meet with James Grant in St. Augustine on his own to press his own needs a little bit later on. But long story short, it does set in stage the conflict because even though Lower Creeks end up drawing a line that does cut out of some of the Alachua uh, grazing lands, this really upsets the Alachuas. Uh, in the years that follow, every time that you see James Grant think about, hey, we want to make another grab at getting more grazing land. There's also the understanding that this is going to upset the Seminole who become the Seminoles even more. And you also see, again, with this meeting, this real dynamic between Lower Creek towns and the Alachua Plains. The Seminoles continued to lose cattle lands through corrupt treaties and European settlement. Ahia the cowkeeper died in 1783, and his son Payne succeeded him as chief of the Seminoles. Payne's Prairie Preserve State Park in Micanopy, Florida is named in his honor. After the Second Seminole War ended in 1842, many Seminoles were driven out of Florida and forced to live on reservations out west. Today, despite the odds against them, the Seminoles still live in Florida. They're also some of the most talented cattle ranchers in the state. Jason Herbert. The amazing thing about the Alachua towns is that they continue to be here in Florida. I think they would probably say they've always been in Florida, just because, you know, the ways in which Europeans looked at land versus the ways in which Creek Indians looked at land were completely different. Creek Indians saw Florida and thought of it as their own. So repositioning themselves, say, from the Oconee River in present-day Georgia onto the Alachua Plains in north-central Florida was not this massive, quote-unquote, migration so much as just as a, a repositioning of the town. And Alachuas end up uh, forming along with Miccosukees in present-day Panhandle, Florida, near Tallahassee. Uh, and other Florida Indians who they uh, adopted into their confederacy end up defending Florida 
from now Americans as we get into the 19th century. And cattle become super important to that defense. By shepherding cattle along with them, they're able to fight off Americans. And those Seminoles who remain here in Florida today have one of the largest cattle operations in the country, the fourth largest in Florida and the 12th largest in the United States as a whole. So that cattle tradition remains incredibly strong and can be traced directly back, not only to say Ahia and the Alachua Plains, but even their predecessors who lived among say uh, the Tamuqua, the Appalachee, and then certainly Calusa and other folks as well. The first cowboys in North America were Indians. And in a lot of cases, they were Florida Indians, and their sovereignty has always been written on rawhide. Jason Herbert has recently written an article about Ohio and Alachua cattle that'll be included in an upcoming issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly, the academic journal published by the Florida Historical Society. The working title of the article is The Politics of Beef, Alachua Indians, and the Contest for Florida Pasture Lands, 1750 to 1775. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program. You can watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. That's writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston singing a work song that she heard performed in lumber camps throughout Florida in the early 20th century. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, lumber has been an important part of Florida's economy for a long time, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. As early as the 18th century, Florida's live oak, pine, and cypress forests were harvested for use in the shipbuilding industry. And when the U.S. acquired Florida in 1821, they set up a naval live oak reservation for the sole purpose of using the wood for construction of naval vessels. Now, by the 19th century, steel replaced wood as a preferred method of shipbuilding. But by this time, more and more people were moving into Florida, and the need for lumber for new homes and buildings was increasing steadily. Now, if you think about it, every structure in Florida at that time period in the 19th century was made out of wood, hotels, private residences, everything. And not only were Florida pine, cypress, and oak trees used in construction within Florida, but it was also being shipped all over the world, creating an enormous industry. And the peak of that lumber production industry in Florida occurred around the first or second decade of the 20th century. Within only half a century or so, much of Florida's lush, old-growth forests were gone, and very little replanting was done at that time. Now, you have here from the Florida Historical Society archives a record of the lumber industry during its heyday. Yeah, so what we're looking at are issues of the Southern Lumber Journal, and they cover various years from the mid-1920s and then a few from 1942. And it was published in Jacksonville. It was a monthly professional journal primarily focused on the business affairs of lumbering, sawmills, turpentine, 
exporting, and everything else relating to lumber production in Florida and actually the greater southeast. In fact, uh, they talk about Virginia, North and South Carolina, Georgia. The magazine was founded in 1896 by Z.W. Whitehead, and it was typical in terms of layout of a serialized professional magazine produced around the turn of the 20th century, about the same size uh, with uh, lots of illustrations and then later photographs added into the magazines. In terms of content, it was really a mix of advertisements for equipment and different types of uh, finished lumber for roofing, flooring, um, as well as many other uses, but also includes articles written by people working within the industry describing trends in construction, increases or decreases in supply and why that was happening, and ideas for new investment opportunities. So, for instance, in this article from 1927, the author writes that the Florida pine forest, if properly managed and protected by the State Board of Forestry, could, quote, afford the state of Florida returns in millions of dollars, unquote. In other words, the author is advocating for better land use practices within the state of Florida, which would promote uh, regrowth on private land, not just public land, but private land as well. Let's take a look at this 1932 special edition supplement that focuses on Florida's forestry issues at that time, specifically the problem of taxation on private land at a time in American history when a lot of landowners were falling delinquent on those lands and the property itself was being confiscated by the state. Now, keep in mind, this was the Great Depression, and the lumber industry was scrambling to lobby state and federal leaders to put money towards reforestation, fire management, and other practices that would yield lumber uh, into the decades to come. In this article by E.W. Scherer of the Brooks Scanlon Corporation in Foley, Florida, he writes that, quote, Few people realize the significance of the now almost completed destruction of that wonderful belt of southern pine timber through lack of foresight and wisdom in the days when the forests were thought to be inexhaustible. No provisions were made to encourage reproduction on the denuded areas, unquote. Pretty strong statement. Now, on the next page, there's even a chart that shows how much land had been sold back to the state simply for back taxes during the Depression. 1925, that was about 2.9 million acres. But by 1930, that number had swelled to almost 7 million acres. Now, the magazine also featured lots of advertising. Here's one for the Newman Planer number 104, which boasted dependability under all conditions. Here's another advertisement for Atkins Silver Steel Saws and Florida, Louisiana Red Cypress Company, the choice of four-sided builders because of its ability to perform. The magazine also had classified ads for employment, machinery sales, uh, even entire mills and yards that were for sale in Florida. We have several issues from 1942, which, of course, is when the U.S. had just entered World War II. So much of the magazine is dedicated to how the lumber industry was working to fill that need during the wartime. And this could be in an unexpected way. So keep in mind, you know, the U.S. was melting down metal for tanks, planes, bullets, what have you. And even simple things like metal beds and cots that were used in military military training camps were being melted down, and in their place, wooden cots were being ordered. So that was kind of a boon to the industry. Here's an article talking about how the lumber industry is dealing with things like labor contracts, price setting during the war, and methods to speed up production, and even drying in the kilns for the wood drying. They even feature an article here about uh, wood frame prefabricated housing for the war effort, which was kind of a new concept at that time. There's so much information packed into these magazines. It's a really a rich source for industrial historians, those looking into environmental history, and even genealogists who are filling in details about ancestors who may have been involved in some way in the industry, because there's a lot of these really interesting kind of individual profiles of different people working, again, all over the Southeast.
In addition to serious and informative articles and advertising, each issue of the Southern Lumber Journal also included some humorous anecdotes, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I would consider these some of the earliest dad jokes, if you will. The last page of every issue features a section called Jokes and Near Jokes. It's not clear uh, who wrote these, but perhaps they were submitted by the readership or maybe the editors just sort of slipped them in. And some are just short jokes like this one. This is a a fictional conversation between a father and son uh, that was featured in the March 1927 issue. And it says here, son, Pa, what does money say when it talks? Father responds, speaking from experience, goodbye. (laughs) Here's another one that says, said the skunk when the wind changed. It's all coming back to me now. <laughs> so they're pretty funny. It's an interesting way to, to kind of wrap up what, what can be sort of a dry and very technical magazine. This is sort of a funny way to end the journal. Those were some real groaners, Ben, but thanks anyway. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see the issues of the Southern Lumber Journal we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. Here's Zora Neale Hurston singing a lumber camp work song. It looked like rain. Lord, Lord, it looked like rain. This is Florida Frontiers. Justin Lawson is a graduate student at the Gilder Lerman Institute of American History at Pace University. He's been researching the history of redlining in Jacksonville's African-American community. As part of FDR's New Deal, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, released a set of residential security maps in 1938 meant to inform federal mortgage agencies in issuing home loans across America. Neighborhoods were given a grade A through D, with A-rated neighborhoods being deemed best and D-rated neighborhoods being called hazardous and shaded red on the maps. This grading reflected America's existing system of federally sanctioned segregation. Best neighborhoods were almost exclusively white, and hazardous neighborhoods were mainly comprised of minorities. This process is known as redlining. Bruce Mitchell is Senior Research Analyst at the National Community Reinvestment Coalition and explains the redlining process. It's a systematic approach to valuation of neighborhoods that was uh, imposed by the HOLC and really resulted in which communities um, were given mortgage loans and which communities were not given mortgage loans. And, you know, in most cases, these HOLC appraisers, my understanding is that they were generally subcontracted to work with the HOLC program and that um, they generally had some sort of loan or real estate experience with the area. So what this is, HOLC maps are, they're a detailed record of how um, these neighborhoods would have been considered in terms of their lending risk at that time. Following the Great Depression, the federal government stepped in, creating programs such as the Federal National Mortgage Association, better known as Fannie Mae, to secure home loans and prevent massive foreclosures during times of economic recession. This modernization of the lending system, it greatly benefits the white middle class. And you see real expansion of the white middle class uh, during this period, post-war period from the 1940s up to the 1970s. They're greatly benefited by this. In the meantime, um, black people are not getting the same sort of benefit from this system because they're denied access to a large extent on this lending system that has been created because of redlining. Jason Richardson is the Director of Research with the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, 
and describes the effects redlining had across the country. The effect, of course, is that for homeowners, your wealth increases as well, right? You know, if you if you're if you own a home that's worth a hundred thousand dollars, and I own a home that's worth five hundred thousand dollars, I have five times the wealth that you do. So as as that goes up, uh, you know, that can be a good thing as long as everybody can participate equally. And generally, for most of that period, especially from World War II to about the end of the seventies, most white people could participate pretty easily. There were 239 cities with HOLC maps, four of them Florida cities, Jacksonville, Miami, Tampa, and St. Pete. Bruce Mitchell compared two census tracts from Jacksonville, one from an A-rated neighborhood known today as San Marco, located between downtown and the former DuPont estate known as Epping Forest, and one from a D-rated Eastside neighborhood around the Jacksonville Jaguars football stadium, once known as Fairfield. This is a red line track, right? Hazardous grading back in the uh, HOLC map. That track has a life expectancy from birth at this point of 69.1 years. It has a poverty rate of 41%. And in terms of health effects, has obesity rates of 47%, okay? Uh, it's also a high minority track. Contrast this with a track that's just barely two miles away, track 16400. This has a life expectancy that's 10 years more than that uh, red line track. It has a poverty rate of uh, 11% and obesity rates of 28% within this tract. And that was, a, that was a best neighborhood in HLC mapping. So what I'm trying to say is these areas that were downgraded as hazardous, you just see this concentration of, dis of disadvantage and of health effects where people live shorter lives, they have worst health outcomes, they probably have worst outcomes related to COVID-19 and the current crisis that we're undergoing right now, then because they have fewer underlying conditions, then people generally who are in these areas that were uh, the best neighborhoods, that were able to access capital, that were able to uh, maintain higher income communities, it's almost as if we have within our cities two different countries existing side by side with each other. It's just created this tremendous disparity within the American urban system. Jason Richardson. Generally speaking, we've ended busing, right? So uh, unless parents go to the, the effort or if the school district has you know, some sort of a system set up to bus people out of their area, they're gonna to go to neighborhood schools. And when neighborhoods are extremely segregated, that means the schools are gonna be extremely segregated. You know, which then means you have a concentration of poverty in the school system. When you codify this sort of segregation, you, you empower it with a longevity that otherwise it may not have had. And so you wind up with neighborhoods that haven't just been poor for the last 10 years. They've been poor for the last century, and there's no indication that they're changing. The kind of stunning thing to think about today is that due to the Great Recession and due to a variety of policies that inhibit lending to minorities. Today, the home ownership rate for African-Americans is lower than it was when segregation was legal. That's kind of a stunning admission of failure when you think about that. Today in Jacksonville, many of the historically black communities listed on the HOLC redline map have been destroyed via eminent domain claims for the construction and expansion of I-95, I-10, and their massive interchange reconstructed in the last decade as well as for the expansion of parking for the newly constructed Federal Courthouse. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Justin Lawson. 
graduate student in American history with the Gilder Lehrman Institute at Pace University. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us on Facebook and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Mark your calendar now for the Florida Historical Society Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium to be held October 9th through 12th. The theme is 2020 Hindsight, How Florida's Past Informs the Present and Future. The conference will be available online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Holly Baker, and this week, Justin Lawson. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.